Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this current series, we are covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which is called the Sira. And today we are on episode or Sira episode number 36. So just a quick recap from the last episode. After Prophet Muhammad وسلم, had conquered Mecca, some of the local tribes were getting skittish, thinking that he might come after them next, and so they planned a preemptive strike. And these two tribes, one of them was very large, called the Hawazin, which was really a collection of many, many smaller tribes. And then there was also the Thaqif, which was the primary tribe of the city of Ta'if about uh, 50 miles or so away from Mecca. When the prophet heard about that, about this uh, gathering of these two tribes, he went out to meet them, and uh, he gathered his forces, went out to, to meet them, to fight them. And among his forces, rem- remember he had, he had just conquered Mecca. He was still in Mecca because he had just conquered it when all this, all this started happening. So there are still many new converts within his his um, army, within his force, that rode out to meet this um, the Hawazin and the Thaqif. And there are even some pagans among the Prophet's army, some people who had not actually accepted Islam yet. So there were he it wasn't made of the of the norm it wasn't made up completely of the strong elements that he had depended on for so long. And so the uh, the two forces started fighting. And at first, the Muslims were uh, pushed back. Once again, they didn't have the forces that were the Prophet was used to fighting with. So it may have been a combination of forces being unfamiliar with the Prophet's and the Muslims' tactics. could also have been a lack of faith or a combination of the two. In any case, the Muslims at first were turned back and caught by surprise, but they eventually rallied and they were able to drive off the pagan forces. The uh, Thaqif, they ran back to their city, Ta'if, and it was a, a fortified city, and they, and they locked the doors and fortified themselves within this, the city. Meanwhile, the Hawazin, they got hit pretty hard. They, um, they lost many of their fighters and much of their wealth and, and women and children who had, they had brought out with them and their camels and sheep and flocks and stuff that they had brought out with them. Many of them were captured and taken as prisoner or as spoils of war by the Muslims. Much of the battle took place inside of a valley called Hunain, hence the battle is called the Battle of Hunain. And this battle is also mentioned in the Quran. Well, some parts of the battle is mentioned in the Quran in Surah Tauba, that is the ninth chapter of the Quran, verse 25 and 26. So the spoils of war and the prisoners of war, they were taken by the Muslims to a well called Al-Ji'arana, and that's where we pick up our story. Right, so as we had mentioned, just mentioned, the Hawazin, for whatever reason, and we mentioned their reasons before, the Hawazin had brought out their women and their children and all their flocks along with them to the battle. The thinking was that this would encourage the men to fight harder, knowing that if they lost, everything that they owned would be taken as uh, captives or as spoils of war. And so this would encourage the men to fight to the death and not run in the heat of battle. Well, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> they, all this stuff got captured by the Muslims, and um, this was very difficult for them. So the Hawazin, the those who survived, and the leaders of the Hawazin clan, and they realized that 
this wasn't going to work out in their favor. And so they sent a delegation to Prophet Muhammad wasallam at this well called Ja'arana. And they accepted Islam at the Prophet's hands and the Prophet ultimately turned back over their property. But let's get into the details of how all of this happened. First and foremost, the Prophet had some familial relations with the Hawazin. As a child, and if you go way back to the early episodes of the Sira podcast, as a child, the Prophet was nursed by a Bedouin woman named Halima. Well, her nickname, her real name was Halima, but she was called Saadiyah as more of a nickname by Muslims later on. She was, um, he was nursed by Halima Saadiyah, who was a Bedouin woman. Well, she was a Bedouin, true, but she was from a clan called Banu Sa'ad. Banu Sa'ad was one of these Hawazin subclans. We mentioned the Hawazin is really a larger clan consisting of many, several subclans. Well, Halima was from one of these subclans. And so, because her profession, and I don't hope I don't have to really explain this, her, she was a, profess, a professional nursemaid, I think, or milkmaid. I'm not sure how best to put it, but as you mentioned earlier, during this time, it was... Um, and it's not just with Muslims or Arabs, it's found throughout the world, women would often, who had new babies, newborn babies, would have their children nursed by other women, sometimes for medical reasons, sometimes for cultural reasons. In the Arabs' case, it was more of a cultural thing. Uh, they believed that having their children nursed by Bedouin women would get the child away from the congested city life, give them a chance to get the uh, pure Arabic speech because the Bedouins were, were considered to have to speak better Arab Arabic than the city Arabs and many other benefits. So long story short, the Prophet was nursed by uh, Halima Sa'adiyah, who was from Banu Sa'ad, which was a subclan of the Hawazin. And so because she nursed many other people, the Prophet had several milk brothers and sisters spread out among the Hawazin. And even though they're not blood brothers and sisters in Islam. That's considered a type of family relationship. Uh, to put this in perspective, I'm sure most Muslims know who are listening to this. Maybe you don't know, but uh, either way, the um, it is forbidden for a Muslim man to marry a Muslim woman who, when they were both nursed by the same woman, even if they are not related whatsoever, because they have the same mother's milk initially nourish them, nourish them, they are forbidden from marrying each other. And so the um, Hawazin delegates, they use this to play on the prophet's kindness and basically stating that some members of your family, and people often use the word foster brother and foster sister. That makes no sense in English. <laughs> in English, you know, a foster brother and a foster sister don't, don't mean the same thing as it's often used in these translations. Milk brother and milk sister, I think, is probably better. But in any case, they try to play on, they try to use this as something to encourage the prophet to uh, help them out because basically he was holding some of his own family members in a, in a way, in a way he was holding some of his own family members as captives. So after the delegates had accepted Islam, they reminded the prophet of their relations and the prophet ultimately agreed. And he agreed, however, to return everything that he had control of so all of his captives and all of the property that he had taken from them as well as those from his clan uh, Banu Abdul Muttalib but he couldn't just take away or maybe he wouldn't more or less he wouldn't just take away 
the captives and the possessions, the spoils of war of his companions. Uh, he and I, you kind of see what the reason why. Well, first, many of the of the Muslims who had taken part in that battle, many of them were new Muslims, and their faith was weak. And these people, these new Muslims, they they would have been very upset if the prophet took what they had fought and bled for. And so the prophet, he wanted to return all of the captives back to the Hawazin, but he had to be diplomatic about it and find a better way of doing it. And so he worked out a plan with the delegates to try to get their family back. And this is, this is how it went. After they prayed Salat al-Dhuhr, the uh, leader of the delegates, he stood up while all the Muslims were gathered after the prayer. He stood up and asked the prophet to intercede with the people and then asked the people to intercede with the prophet to return their captives and possessions. And then in front of everybody, the prophet then agreed to return the captives and the, possess and the possessions under his control, hoping this would be a way of motivating the others to do the same. And it worked partially. The Muhajirun and the Ansar, these were the people who had been Muslim pretty much from the beginning, especially the Muhajirun. The Ansars were there almost from the beginning also, very early on. They were the Prophet's base of power and support. These groups, they automatically did the same thing, same thing the Prophet did. They said, our possessions belong to the Prophet. So if he gives his away, if he gives it back to them, uh, we're going to return them also. And so they immediately agreed. They were, of course, once again, the strongest in faith. However, most of the other clans who had come in later on, many of them did not agree. Only one clan who was not from among the Ansar and the Muhajirun agreed to return their um, possessions and captives. This, this was Banu Sulaim. And so for the other clans that did not agree to do it voluntarily, the Prophet ﷺ promised to basically buy it off of them. He said he would give them six camels for every captive that they freed. And so ultimately, these clans, they did agree finally. So they gave up their captives in return for six camels for each one. So for better or for worse, the Prophet had to buy the captives off of the others. So moving on now, we move on to Malik ibn Auf. We mentioned that in the last episode that he was the pagan commander. He was, he was from the Thaqif tribe and he was the co pagan commander during the Battle of Hunain. Uh, and he was from uh, Taif, where the Thaqif clan came from. After the battle was over, um, Malik ibn Auf, he led his soldiers, those who were still survive, who, who had survived the battle, led them back into Ta'if and the Prophet laid siege on the city, but they had it was well fortified. Eventually the Prophet broke off the siege and returned to the well Jarana. And that's where our story began today. However, the Prophet now he wanted perhaps he saw some something special in Malik ibn Auf, and so he wanted to try to uh, get Malik ibn Auf to come over to his side, force um, fighting him by force didn't work, so the Prophet tried to do another tactic. So he told the delegates from Hawazin to go back and tell Malik ibn Auf that if he accepted Islam, the Prophet would return his uh, Malik ibn Auf's captured family as well as his possessions, and then on top of that, give him 100 camels as well. So this would basically turn Malik ibn Auf into a wealthy man. And it worked. When Malik ibn Auf heard the prophet's offer, he had to sneak out of, out of Taif because if the leaders of Taif found out what had been offered, they would have held him in chains because 
the Ta'if were not prepared to give up their wealth. And they were not prepared to give up their faith. And I guess their wealth too, because they would have had to pay zakat um, had they accepted Islam. They weren't prepared to give those things up to the Prophet. And they would not have liked for Malik ibn Auf to abandon them and join the Prophet's side while he becomes a rich man. So Malik ibn Auf was a fairly young man at this time. Um, I think he was running for about in his mid-30s or so. So he was a military leader for the Thaqif clan, but he was not a political leader. Most likely, even though I haven't really confirmed it, I'm going to pretty much presume that the Thaqif, like most other Arab clans at the time, and definitely the, the Meccans, they had a, a loose organizational structure, but the leaders were generally a council of elders, uh, the, the council of el the, the main tribal elders of that city or that clan. So uh, Malik ibn Auf, being a young man, he would not have had any political clout, but he was their military leader. And that's kind of obvious, the general leading, who, who is being a general leading the military, but his supervisors and his bosses are the usually older, older men of the society. It happens even today. So my presumption, and I'm kind of presuming this, this is that the prophet saw something good in Malik ibn Auf, and this is a classic divide and conquer strategy by the prophet, or I guess it's more of a tactic by the prophet, and he saw Malik ibn Auf as a good military leader, and he pried him away. So anyway, Malik ibn Auf, he met with the prophet at Al-Ji'arana at the well, and he accepted Islam, and true to his word, the prophet returned Malik's uh, family and his possessions, and then gave him 100 camels on top of that. And then the prophet made Malik ibn Auf the commander of the tribes around Taif, or the leader of the tribes around Taif. We mentioned that during the siege, while the prophet was besieging Taif, many of the other clans around the city had accepted Islam. They didn't have the benefit of a fortress to protect them. And so they just went ahead and capitulated and accepted Islam. And so the prophet put um, Malik ibn Auf as their leader. And then now Malik ibn Auf, he led these guys, these Muslims around Taif, and a protracted war against his people of Taif, the Thaqif, within Taif. And so he started fighting against them, um, the Thaqif, as leader of these tribes surrounding the city of Taif. This was a way for the Prophet ﷺ to keep the Thaqif busy while he was away in Mecca or Medina, which he was about to go to soon once uh, all of this was over. Then we get to the division of the spoils of war. So now the Prophet ﷺ is ready to return to Medina. Uh, before he left Mecca, however, he made Umrah. So he left a the uh, well of Ja'arana, traveled to back to Medina. I'm sorry, traveled back to Mecca, made Umrah, which is a minor pilgrimage, then traveled back to Ja'arana. And while he was there, he began to divide the spoils of war. While he was in Mecca, however, he assigned Atab ibn Asid as the governor of Mecca. And he also decided to leave the companion Mu'adh ibn Jabal uh, to teach the people Islam. And so the prophet, he returned to Ja'arana, and now he's ready to leave and return to Medina. And as he's leaving, however, the people began to ask him to divide the spoils of war. My guess is that they weren't able to do it themselves, or they wanted the prophet to mediate it as the leader. They wanted him him to be the the one to oversee things because they trusted his fairness and also if, if you leave people to do these things there will be allegations of of uh, injustice and unfairness and even with the prophet doing it people still accused him of being unfair and we'll get to that soon inshallah so before leaving 
Al-Ji'arana, the prophet halted under a tree and he began to divide up the spoils of the battle. So some men, they got a special gift. This is to soften their hearts. And this is something that um, the prophet did often. And it's mentioned in the Quran, chapter 9, verse 60. I'm going to read the English real quick. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says what translates to zakat is meant only for the poor and for the needy and for those employed for collections and for bringing hearts together and for freeing captives and for those in debt and for the cause of Allah and for the traveler and obligation from Allah and Allah is all knowing and wise. So these people, these are new Muslims, people who were former enemies of the prophet and the prophet wanted to reconcile their their hearts because now they're subjects of the prophet they're pretty much um how do I, I don't want to say they weren't servants of the prophet of course not but they were pretty much his subjects he was their ruler so to speak and so the prophet wanted to ease it over for them let them know that try to keep their ego from being too hostile make sure that they stayed on the right path make sure they stayed within his fold and as we often say in the English translation in Islam is often called reconciling their hearts, basically bringing them into his fold, I guess we can say it that way also. Anyway, so these people, these were influential men within the Quraysh and the other tribes, and the Prophet wanted to make sure that they were fully committed to Islam. These, I'm not going to mention all their names, but some of them were Abu Sufyan, of course. Um, he was a leader of the Quraysh and one of the Prophet's primary enemies. Also, Abu Sufyan's son, Muawiyah, who was probably being probably being groomed to be a leader. And if you listen to the Islamic History podcast, you're pretty familiar with Muawiyah. Also, Suhail ibn Amr, who was the one who negotiated the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And then he also gave um, an extra bounty of 100 camels to several leaders of, from among the Thaqif and the Hawazin who had converted to Islam. So to these men and several others, the Prophet gave them um, an especial gift of 100 camels, once again, to try to soften their hearts and reconcile their hearts with the fact that they were now uh, essentially conquered people and bringing them closer and making it easier for them to transition into Islam. But maybe that's the best way of saying it. And while the Prophet was giving out the, um, the spoils of war, it wasn't just these influential men who got spoils of war. Many people got the spoils of war. Pretty much everybody who participated got something. So while he was dividing the spoils, a man named Dhul Huwaisira from the Tamim tribe accused the prophet of being unfair. Uh, exact words, there's a hadith about it. Exact words are basically saying, oh, oh Muhammad, be fair or be just. And the prophet was evidently insulted or insulted or angry about this. And he said, if I am not just, then there is no justice in the world. Saying, who else is going to be just except for me? Or if I'm not just, that's not what going If I'm not just, because the prophet is, of course, the most just and most fair of all mankind. The prophet said, if I'm not just, then no one can be called just. Omar was there. Omar ibn Khattab, he was there. And once again... Omar requested permission to take off this man's head. And once again, the Prophet had to restrain him. Seems like Omar is always threatening this, to uh, behead someone. And as the man slinked away, the Prophet said that this man will have a following that will penetrate the deen, penetrate the religion like an arrow going through its target. So, as it's often described, when a good archer 
shoots his target, basically an animal, with his arrow, and it's very well, and it's a very good shot. It passes straight through the animal so fast, nothing clings to it. Nothing clings to the head or to the shaft or to the, um, the tail or anything like that. So it goes straight through the animal real clean. And so this has been interpreted in many ways. Some have said that people, these people who follow this man, we'll get to that description soon. These people who would follow this man, they would be people who, whose Islam would seem great, but none of it would stick with them, meaning that they have the outer appearance of a Muslim, they have the actions of a Muslim, they think they have the behavior and character of a Muslim, but they are truly None, nothing of Islam really sticks with them. They don't really embody the true spirit of Islam. And another way of looking at it is that these people will penetrate Islam so deeply that you will never know that they are among you and that they'll be all over the place. And so there are many interpretations of this. We'll get into that right now. Some have said that this relates to the Khawarij, and this is the most popular opinion. And the Khawarij were a band of Muslims first during the time of the Fitna, the civil war between Muawiyah and Ali. The Khawarij were a band of Muslims who basically were <laughs> destructive. They hated it. They disliked, they called everybody except for their own group Kufars or non-Muslims or that their blood was, was valid now, meaning that it was perfectly fine to kill any other Muslim who wasn't part of their group because these were not good Muslims. And I tried to find a direct connection between this person who said this statement to the Prophet and the actual Khawarij during the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib. And I couldn't find a direct connection. I probably could if I searched hard enough, but my time, time was short. But that person who accused the Prophet of being unfair, he was from the tribe of Tamim and the first leader that the Khawadis chose after they first de fully defected from Ali. At first, they were just um, upset with Ali for agreeing to negotiate with Muawiyah. Then when he finally did negotiate with Muawiyah, they fully separated from Ali, and they said Ali was not Muslim, and Muawiyah wasn't Muslim. They just hated everybody after that. After that. Their first leader, when they fully defected from Ali, was a man from the Tamim tribe. Others have said that this description of people who uh, pass through Islam like an arrow through his target, others have, have said that this uh, is a description of the Salafis or the, or the Wahhabis as their, as their opponents call them. I'm not saying that's true. I don't necessarily believe that's true, by the way. However, the founder of what we now consider modern-day Salafism was Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, and he was also from the tribe of Tamim. Now, be very careful. This is not to say that the Tamimis or the clan of Tamim, Banu Tamim, is cursed or evil or, or inherently bad or wicked or anything like that. Many great scholars and Muslims have come from that tribe, and I don't even want to I think that what my opinion of what the Prophet was saying was not necessarily this person's lineage, but the people who accept his ideology. So 
be careful of thinking that everyone who happens to be from the Tamim clan is bad or wrong or wicked or anything like that. So anyway, that's for um, just a little bit for something for you to ponder about. Moving on with the spoils. Now, the Ansars, the, uh, the helpers, the people who were the original inhabitants of Medina uh, before the Prophet came and settled, them, settled with them, they did not get any of the spoils. And some of them were upset about this. And I don't know who started the rumor, but uh, gossip and, and fear-mongering, or I don't know how you want to call it, began spreading among the Ansars. They began to say that, oh, when it's time for war, we're the prophet's companions. But when it's time to divide up the spoils, he wants to give it all to his people. And so you can see, you can kind of imagine that kind of bad blood or bad talk circulating among the people because after the Battle of, of Hunain, the, um, the Ansars did not get anything. So one of the leaders of Hunain, I'm sorry, one of the leaders of the Ansar um, from the Khazraj tribe, Sa'ad ibn Abada, who was one of those who the Prophet consulted with during many of the battles in Medina, he came to the Prophet and he told the Prophet of the grumblings that was going on, going on among his people. So the Prophet, when he heard about it, he called for all of the Ansars to gather and he began to preach to them and talk to them. He reminded them of the blessing that they'd received since he'd come because the Ansars had grown very, very rich. Medina had become essentially the capital of this growing empire. Okay, and so the Prophet reminded them that they were basically, you know, they had received so many blessings. For one, they had the Prophet among them. That's the greatest blessing. But then also, also Allah had blessed them with all this material wealth because as the prophet conquered, the others, as the Muslims, I should say, conquered these tribes around them, well, they absorbed a lot of that wealth and it came back into Medina and the Ansars got pretty wealthy from that. And so he also said that um, he was only doing this to reconcile the hearts of people who, who were new Muslims and who used to be his enemies who a few months earlier, they were ready to kill each other. And so he was trying to reconcile the hearts of these people. And then he confirmed that if it wasn't for the hijrah, it wasn't for the fact that he had he had made migration, that he basically that Allah had put him among the muhajirun, then he would rather be an Ansar. There's no other group of people greater than the greater than the Ansars except for the muhajirun. And he told he went on to tell the Ansars that these people, talking about the um, the Quraysh and the other tribes who were getting these spoils of war, these um, this extra gifts from the Prophet, saying these people, they're getting sheep and camels. You've got me. I'm paraphrased, but he's telling them that basically you got me. I'm going back home to Medina with you. Okay, so all they got sheep and camels, and you got something much, much greater than that. And so then the prophet closed it off by praying for the Ansars and asking Allah to bless them, have mercy on them and their children and their children's children. And the Ansars are just weeping and crying and they're all messed up. It's a, it's a heartwarming story. It is actually when you read it. It's a very good story. And the, the Ansars were they were completely pleased with the prophet. So some, I presume that many of them who, who were grumbling, I'm pretty sure they were sorry for even even having these evil thoughts come into their head. And that situation was wrapped up with that so now it's time for the prophet to return to medina it is now the uh, 11th month of the year we are still in the year 8 ah after the hijra but it's coming to an end so just to understand now when he departed medina to conquer mecca 
That was during Ramadan, the ninth month of the year. The Battle of Hunayn took place during Shawwal, the 10th month of the year, and now they're in Dhul Qa'dah, the 11th month of the year. And so the Prophet and his companions returned to Medina. The next month, of course, is Dhul Hijjah, the last month of the year, and this is the month of the Hajj. And for the first time in centuries, perhaps since the time of Prophet Ibrahim salam and Prophet Ismail salam. A Muslim led the Hajj for the first time. It was led by Atab ibn Asid, who the Prophet had left in charge. And for the first time in over a thousand years, no pagan idols were at the Kaaba. And so that would pretty much close it out. One last thing uh, during this month, during, during this month, um, Dun Hijjah, the prophet's concubine, Maria Kubtia, the Mar- or Maria the Copt, she, she gave birth to the prophet's son, Ibrahim. And that pretty much ends it for the year 8AH. In the next episode, inshallah, we will begin the ninth year of the Hijrah. This is the year of the delegations, and the prophet begins to consolidate pretty much m- m- all of Arabia under Islam. Inshallah, that will be in the next episode. So until then... Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.